Welcome to Blackbird episode number 43. My name is James, and today I am joined by Andrew, otherwise known as CPU God. Andrew is a musician and a technologist, and he combines those pretty uniquely into some interesting musical productions. So I wanted to talk to him about that, and also the future of technology, why he is so optimistic about the future, even when taking into account big tech and censorship, and the sort of fascistic combination of technology and government that we're seeing right now. Before we get started with Andrew, let me tell you once again about Paloma Verde CBD. Paloma Verde is, of course, the CBD company founded by Blackbird guest Carlos Avilar and his wife, Vanessa. I use Paloma Verde's tincture every single morning. I've also used their gummies and their topical salve for muscle pain. I tend to wake up with a headache some mornings. My pulse is often elevated, and I just sometimes wake up feeling anxious. And so the CBD really helps kind of take that edge off, calm me down a little bit, get me ready for my day. I also give CBD to my dog. Paloma Verde has specifically formulated pet CBD, and my dog, who has severe anxiety, especially in the summer when fireworks are going off, has seen a marked improvement in his kind of uptightness. He mostly sleeps during the day now. He doesn't bark nearly as much when I let him out and there's people walking past. And most importantly, when there's fireworks going off at night or even during thunderstorms, he's not cowering next to me, shivering uncontrollably. Yeah, he still gets a little bit anxious. He still gets a little bit antsy when there's loud pops and booms and bangs, but he's not out of control shaking. And to me, that's a huge improvement. So head to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to get 25% off your order. Also, a little bit of housekeeping. I know that I have always told you to go to BlackBird.Substack.com to sign up for updates from this show and for my written content. While that address will still work, I've now transferred over my personal domain, BlackBirdPodcast.com, to make it a little bit easier to remember for you and a little bit easier for me to recommend to people. So if you're sharing the show or if you are still not signed up to receive updates every time that I publish a podcast episode or something written, go to blackbirdpodcast.com, enter your email address to sign up for free. And if you really like the show or if you'd like to get the premium content that's going to be coming out, then sign up for a subscription at $7 a month or $70 a year. You'll really be helping me out and I appreciate all of the paid subscriptions that I get. And with that, here is my interview with Andrew, the CPU God. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, man. It's a pleasure. Okay, so first of all, um, people who listen to Run Your Mouth with Robbie Bernstein have heard from you a couple of times before. But uh, other than that, you're fairly obscure in the Liberty space. Um, so why don't you kind of introduce yourself so that people yeah. know who we're talking to? Sounds good. Um, as you've just mentioned, I don't have a boilerplate answer to this, so I'll try to just distill this down for um, your audience, which I would imagine is uh, made up of a lot of liberty lovers, and that's also where I would fall myself. Um, I'm very much somebody who likes to practice what I believe in, and um, you know, my background for most of my intellectual and professional life has been on topics that until recently have been pretty obscure. Um, you know, since I was a little kid, I've been very interested in peer-to-peer software and uh, peer-to-peer networking, decentralization of networking. 
And um, simultaneous to that, I've been a musician, and I actually have professional background as an audio engineer. So these are all very obscure topics, but then podcasting started to happen. And then Liberty kind of got its like V2 after the Ron Paul revolution. Um, and then we started seeing all the big tech censorship. And Robbie was very kind to kind of take a chance and have me on to talk about that stuff because I have existed for most of my uh, professional life in areas uh, where I can shed a lot of uh, insight into the sorts of darker aspects of working at like big tech companies and using services like YouTube and SoundCloud and Spotify. Uh, so yeah, just uh, real excited to be talking about whatever it is that we want to get into today. Um, you know, as, as far as my music goes, one of the things I'll say is that it's really my uh, vision of how to do music as um, a liberty-loving person um, in the sort of voluntarist fashion uh, for the 21st century. So that's kind of what my ambition's been there. You have like a, um, I guess, article, I don't, I don't really know, a, a post, a post at your website called Music Ain't for Airports. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So one of the things that uh, my music project, which is called Sonic Multiplicities, um, and it can be found at multiply.city, M-U-T-L-P-I dot city. So multiplicity spelled out. It's a reaction to, I think, a lot of the ways that we've misused music in culture, as well as the ways that we've misused computers to make music in our culture. And so um, people might know the Brian Eno album, Music for Airports, um, which I'm a fan of, actually, and I, I like the music. Um, it was a piece of music that Brian Eno wrote, um, an ambient work uh, for the, I forget which airport it was, I think it was Stockholm, in the mid-70s. And I think that that innovation was very cool. And as a musician, I really take value from it. But the thing that I think it's led to over these last many decades is the use of music in a way that is attempting to cover up for bigger problems in the world. So um, when I think about an airport, the last thing I think about is that's, that's a great place to listen to music. Like it's one of the most chaotic places that you'll ever go to in your normal modern life. And, you know, for me, um, when I started thinking about, well, what's going on there? Why are we astroturfing the world with music? It made me realize that there's sort of a dark idea there that they're actually trying to, you know, do what they can to cover up a lot of the sort of nonsensical aspects to our reality with music. And, um, you know, I think that people um, giving way to programs like um, Ableton Live and Pro Tools on the audio side has equally led to an outcome where consumers don't really think about music anymore either. And it's really just a way to sort of plaster over a lot of the problems that we live through every day. And so my music in many ways is a reaction against that. And what I want to do is go deeper and bigger into music and make it more uncomfortable than people are used to mm -hmm. um, so that you can't really use it as a way to plaster over your current world because the world that I want to build with Sonic Multiplicities is even scarier and crazier than that. Can you describe the music a little bit? I, I've been listening to some of it and um, it's certainly not my taste, although I think that might be the point. So the music, the way that we make Sonic Multiplicity's music is actually um, through the utilization of um, artificial intelligence and big data. Oh. For the last 11 years, what we've been doing is basically pioneering a way to reappropriate these technologies of war. And instead of using them to like drone bomb people and to track people from cradle to grave, we're using them instead to track the real-time musical decisions that performers make. And in this way, we can have performers who really want to try a new thing out and break through 
the confines of traditional music, they actually have a way to try it and experiment in musically free, flowing fashion. And what it leads to is moments of um, lots of self-discovery for the musician. But what they also start to do is they start to learn how to sort of improvise with this software that I've written mm. as a way of making it more like a musical partner, someone that they can sort of vibe off of and um, treat as if they're uh, an equal in the musical space. But all they're doing is taking that music that this person's playing and sort of like live dubbing it, for lack of a better way to describe it. So it does become chaotic and it becomes large and there's lots of delay and echo and uh, musical ideas become very rapid in their execution. So a lot of it will be these 40-minute long journeys where musicians are just sort of going through a self-discovery of what it means to be a solo musician in the 21st century. It's the most deprived aspect of music today, I think, is the solo musician. There used to be all sorts of soloists who would play music all over the place. And today we find that you kind of have to be in a group and you have to have your ideas subverted by a record label, a publishing company, uh, a bunch of producers, and then even the consumers themselves. I wanted to give musicians a way to explore what it sounds like to just do them in the most intense way possible. And so that's often what it sounds like. A lot of intense noise, a lot of um, asynchronous rhythms, a lot of clashing frequencies. Sometimes we have melodies that someone played a year ago and re-enter into a performance in real time. And that's kind of like a way of, um, you know, being able to enjoy the musical experience over a length of time longer than the performance itself. So there's a lot going on with this music, but it sort of is intended to be controllable chaos that a solo musician can learn how to wrestle over and uh, turn into something pretty for the audience. So you've got, like, for instance, Garrett, the violinist. When he sits down, he puts in his he puts in his monitor. Is he is he hearing your software's output? Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Okay. So I'm having trouble. Like I've watched the videos. I'm just having trouble kind of imagining what it's like in the room. And like you said, it gets a little bit chaotic. Like uh, this is not the kind of thing you're going to hear on a top forty station or even on like the. Uh, you know, the local college station or anything like that. This is really music for music's sake. This isn't necessarily music for the sake of selling albums. That's true. My my time horizon for this music is definitely a lot further out because I'm not looking to profit from it. You know, I have other ways to, you know, uh, enjoy life beyond the music I make. And so mm-hmm. for me, it's all about doing what music's real values and goals are. And to me, the ultimate expression of sovereignty is music. And so for me, it's something that I pursue almost as like a life's passion, a passion project where if I'm going to do something with music, I want it to be something that no one else has done before and something that can contribute uniquely to the discussion. You know, my background musically is in jazz. And so um, that's kind of where I get this inspiration from of treating music like this continuum that is a power you have to learn how to harness and then share with others. And, um, you know, I think that that experience of being in the room, seeing the performance in real time, it's so crucial because what you're watching is a musician reacting and thinking in real time about what they're doing and how what they're doing changes, not only how they sound, but how their computer partner sounds too. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you're watching, I think, on display of a sort of like a symbolic representation of life today, where we're all sort of subconsciously intuiting what it is that we need to do to make sure the machines don't get mad at us and to make sure that we don't step out of line. You know, it just feels like, especially over the last couple of years, 
that the ideas behind the music have really started to take form in our lives as well. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, it is a lot like jazz, really. Uh, the the improvisation and just sort of playing with one another's instruments, even though in most cases that in in your music the accompaniment isn't more musicians. It's it's the the computers that are kind of the the software that's piping in through the through the person's ear monitors. That's correct. And, and, you know, one of the cool things we do about this music is it's actually a 360 degree experience where the 20 channels of audio that we output um, are being used to represent a three dimensional sound field using ambisonics. And so what you're experiencing is actually um, the speaker version of what's going on in the head of the performer who when they turn their head and look a different way, they're hearing the entire world of their sound shift. Um, and pan up and down, left and right. They can even take steps to and from the sound locations and hear things better. This is like a really important aspect to the music is that it's three-dimensional in not just the way that you hear it, but the way you experience it. Um, There's no real place where the audience sits and the performer stands, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. sort of engaged together. What is ambisonics? Yeah, so ambisonics is basically a way to... Uh, represents sound more as an environment rather than uh, two origin points. Most okay. people understand digital audio today as having stereo channels, two stereo channels. Uh, I'm sorry, two mono channels, which makes stereo. A left and a right. You'll see speakers uh, that playback sound will typically have a left and a right. And this is good if you want to be able to say, put the saxophone in one place and the bass in another. But what if you wanted to put you know, the drum set above you. Well, in 2D stereo sound, you can't do that. In ambisonics, you get the um, added benefit of not just being able to show differences from left and right, you also get um, forward and back and up and down. And so it's a lot like a virtual reality kind of representation of audio. If you think of like a video as like something in 360 degree video or VR, you can look around it's the same concept, but for audio. So uh, for best effects, should I listen to your music on like a Dolby Atmos system or something like that? Or Dolby Atmos can definitely handle it, yes. Um, there's other systems too. Um, okay. But yeah, Atmos is definitely the, the leading consumer way to listen to that stuff or just headphones. Um, you know, I find that music that's made outside of like the Ableton Live, you know, kind of traditional ecosystem, it has the ability to express greater amounts of resolution uh, when you make music through Ableton Live and Pro Tools and stuff like that, you're sort of inherently limiting the amount of information that can come into the speakers when you listen back. And one of the cool things about ambisonics is it opens up the ability for you to really listen critically. And so if you do have a good audio setup um, at home, it really benefits, I think, when you listen to my music. Right, awesome. And so people can consume the music either on your website or they can just subscribe to your podcast feed, right? You, you're putting it out via RSS? Yes, it's all for free, and it all goes out via the podcast feed. And, um, you know, I encourage people to even download it and pirate it. I, I, please download it and spread it, put it on the public and private trackers, put it on Usenet. I don't care, right? Like, my whole thing mm-hmm. is um, I want to make it easy to disseminate and to spread around. And uh, I don't think anybody should ever be stopped from listening to anything, frankly, um, but especially to my music, because that's payment for me, is to know that someone's listening. Um, I don't seek any profit from this. Uh, the only thing I want is to be able to open people's minds up, you know, if that's what they're seeking. Okay, great. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a clip of 
one of the songs that particularly, I don't know, is it even songs? Is that the right word for it? <laughs> Some of them are songs, actually. Yeah, we just, uh, we're putting out a, a, an album of songs soon. Yeah, this, uh, this untitled on cello, uh, and I misplaced the artist, but uh, uh, Cosmo D. Uh, um, yes. I particularly like that one because I love cello. So I'm going to put a little clip of that in the, in my, in my outro, I think, just so people can kind of get a feel for what we're talking about. And then also obviously put links um, to your website and your music aim for airports article in the show notes. Killer. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, so in addition to, in addition to music, you're also a software engineer. When I asked you to come on, I wanted to talk about QAnon, but then I found out all this other, like more interesting stuff about you. So we can get into QAnon later if, if there's time for it. Um, I do want to know what, what do you see on the horizon for the future of technology, the internet, the way that we're communicating with one another as a, as a, as a human race? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it was really tough to even see uh, this coming, everything that has precipitated over the past couple of years. And so had and, you asked and specifically, me, you're talking about like tech censorship. Um, I, I'm hesitant to use the word monopoly because libertarians have specific mm-hmm. meanings of that, that the government doesn't, doesn't share and things like that. But um, this like hegemony that um, Michael Rechtenwald calls the Google, Google archipelago for, you know, if you just want to use a term of art or a creative, yeah. a creative term, that's, that's kind of what we're talking about, where Google, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon kind of run the show when it comes to information dispersal. Yeah, um, you know, I think that it's a very unsettling development, and uh, the future that I see for that circle, especially of um, the tech space, is a lot more enlargening of that influence and of that way of thinking in the broader culture. I think that where we've gotten today is very much where we got right before um, Microsoft was sued for antitrust reasons by the government. We've entered a new um, world of digital ownership where it used to be mainly a Microsoft ownership, but now, as you've mentioned, it's like the FANG companies, Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, Google. And um, what that signifies is a big shift in the way that this is all going to impact us. Um, The way that the Microsoft ownership over society uh, played out was it brought us into a kind of hyper business-friendly environment where lots of mergers and lots of takeovers could occur. And it kind of led us to this environment that you bring up as a monopoly, potentially. Um, I think that's a very good definition because it is absolutely state-aided, the creation of this thing. Now, Michael Rechtenwald brings up the fact that Google is an extension of, you know, the intelligence agencies of the United States, and that's very true, not to mention the other intelligence apparatus going on throughout the world. What they're doing is basically treating Google, Amazon, Facebook, just like China treats their versions of those same technologies, where they're in lockstep with respect to how they can track us, and if they need anything about us, all they have to do is ask these companies, and they will deliver. So, you know, we're looking at, I think, a standardized world, uh, one where, you know, the tech standards that you're following really dictate your policy. And that's very disturbing development because that implies that we're going to go greater towards dependency on the cloud, which means greater dependency on outside external actors that you don't know or trust. And I think that's a very bad development. One of the things that people will say about things like Bitcoin or the blockchain is that it's trustless. And while that's true and a good thing for certain applications, it's bad in general for the world. So why do you why do you say that it's bad in general for the world? Well, because I think the value of the internet 
was its, um, I hate to use the word democratization, but um, its ability um, to <laughs> Another bring people- Another word libertarians don't like. <laughs> exactly. Well, but see, what it did was it opened up anybody who was smart, basically, anybody who had thoughts, ideas, anybody who wanted something could then have a place where they could express that. And then they could find either other services or other people that also- are interested in that topic. Maybe they give you an answer. Maybe they give you resources on how to get the answer. That um, relationship was a really beautiful thing, but now it's definitely turning into something more feudalistic where you're no longer in control of your software. The software is in control of you. And I think that's the thing I really fear, right? Is that we're going to um, see the effects of having this in our culture for 20 years now, we're going to see people who are incurious. We're going to see people who don't want to leave their lane. And we're going to see people who don't want to take risks. And I think we're starting to see that out of Gen Z today. Sure. So to maybe synthesize a little bit, trust and trustworthiness are good things in human human interaction and in kind of human personality development. And so when you get rid of the need for trust, a la blockchain uh, ledgers and that sort of thing, um, then you're actually getting rid of something, some good aspect of human of humanity. Is that is that about right? Absolutely. And so when you when you hear um, Steve Jobs call the personal computer the bicycle of the mind, uh, that is still true today. And I really want it to be true today. And the problem we face is that it's becoming more like the public service bus of the mind or the subway of the mind where you're given a couple of places you can go and a couple of ways you can get there and you're really locked down and you're at the mercy of whoever built the system. Uh, that's not really in the spirit to me of what trust is about, which is how people find each other and like vie with each other over a shared purpose or idea. Um, and that's what we're losing is uh, the desire for people to want to find those things in others. It also makes it really easy to be mean to one another. I mean, that's, <laughs> yes. that's a, that I, I think these are, these are one in the same. Uh, let me, so for instance, uh, I have, I have a friend, he's, I don't know, he's younger. He's probably in his mid twenties. Um, but, uh, he posted on his Snapchat story, a screenshot of an interaction he had on Instagram with a former coworker who, as far as he knows, has a girlfriend, but this former coworker was flirting with another girl in her in her comments on, on her Instagram post. And, you know, I mean, sure, that's a little bit sleazy, especially if you have a girlfriend and you're not in an open relationship. Um, this public flirting is probably uh, not the best way to pick up chicks. But my acquaintance, um, I'm hesitant to call him a friend. We're not close. But uh, he, he, he first commented, like sub-commented on this guy's comment, uh, yo, bro, don't you have a girlfriend? And then screenshotted the conversation to let everybody know that he confronted this guy on Instagram, even though that guy's not presumably not following him on Snapchat, not seeing this post. All he's doing is showing his friends that he confronted this guy. And to me, like, yes, it's a, it's probably a good thing to confront a dude who may be acting untoward towards his girlfriend who presumably doesn't want him flirting with other girls. And also to this girl who probably doesn't want her Instagram post to be like, the the catalyst for her, you know, getting picked up by guys, maybe. I mean, you, you never really know. I, I I appreciate compliments, but you know, whatever. It's just that by posting it publicly only for his Snapchat friends to see, that seems equally as creepy as hitting on a girl in her in her Instagram comments. And that's not really a thing that you would have seen prior to Internet 2.0. 
or 3.0. I don't know where we're at right now in the in the in the internet versions, but we are actually um, um, on our way from 2.0 into 3.0. We can definitely talk about that later, Love but. To. I think that's a very interesting, but unfortunately, um, increasingly more common, um, you know, anecdote that you're sharing. And I think one of the things I realized early on was how similar it was uh, to um, do that to this girl, and then to um, break that web of trust and post this thing publicly to your Snapchat followers. It's the same sort of basic social uh, violation that I think you're witnessing, right? Uh, maybe not to the same extreme, of course, mm-hmm. but. Um, you're dealing with um, accepted norms that are being broken uh, and then being um, unfairly or unwillingly kind of parroted in front of you. And I think, you know, the other thing you have to remember is the other side of that equipped to see this information. Just because I follow somebody, does that mean I want to always know about this person's less than, you know, kosher behavior with respect yeah, yeah. to violating other people's boundaries? Like, there used to be um, a way to sort of delegate the level of a relationship you wanted to have, but with the way that social media kind of bastardizes that, <laughs> we're now left with uh, this very impersonal um, binary choice, on or off, right? Do I want to know everything about this person or do I want to know nothing? Yeah. I don't think that's very helpful. Yeah, and it's easy to, it's easy to segment it too. I mean, anybody who's seen me on Twitter and that's all that they know about me might think that I'm kind of an asshole. But anybody who meets me in person and doesn't see my Twitter at all uh, thinks I'm the nicest guy in the world. And, and that's just me. And I, I'm cognizant of this stuff. People who aren't thinking about that kind of thing, I mean, good, good Lord. I mean, <laughs> it's like they're completely different people. So, I mean, I, I've heard recently that Pete Quinones has had this problem where, um, you know, oh, yeah. he, because he chooses to engage in the uh, subtle art of trolling, he does have this problem where people think he's like not a nice guy. But that is really, I think, a, more of an indication of how the whole view of hierarchy in, in the world is really just being dispelled with with these social media networks. And look at the results, right, where we start to think these one track minded thoughts about people who we have to know are just like us. They're decent, uh, dynamic people who probably are generally moral. And um, that kind of nuance is just kind of being lost here because mm-hmm. they decided that friendship on a social media network means something corporate and not something human. You mentioned moral. Hmm. This is something that I brought up on this show before, and it might not be something that you want to speak to. But uh, to me, the the modern age ended with like the, 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 nuclear, the nuclear bomb. When science stopped being about, you know, finding the, you know, deeper, the, the deeper truths about the universe and started becoming more about a utilitarian, why are we doing this? Well, because we can do this type thing. And, and obviously with weapons of war, which I guess it does, it is something that you talk about a lot. It's, it's this whole, your whole music program is about countering these weapons of war. The, the state obviously is involved. And when you get the state involved in science, the state's going to do what it's going to do. It's going to turn science violent. And to me, postmodernism was like a reaction to that where morality stopped. Like they didn't go all the way back to the uh, the pre-modern age where morality was universal and objective, but they took it a, a completely different direction to now there's so where the where the where the modern age ended in an amoral uh, sort of paradigm, the postmodernists took morality and made it completely subjective to the point where now, you know, one guy's one guy's flirting and trying to pick up a girl is another guy's sexual harassment worthy of being publicized on his 
on his popular Snapchat story. Can you can you riff on that a little bit, Jazz Guy? <laughs> I know that wasn't a question. No, no, I'm I'm kind of blown away by the uh, comparison you're making here, and I, I really like it. I think you know the thing that I see is the desire uh, for us to be able to simplify our uh, daily stressors in life and to sort of be able to either deal with them or to get rid of them. And I think that for a lot of people, there's a um, there's a limit to how much information they can take in, how much they want to know, um, but they don't have the knowledge yet to control that and make it a really important part of their life. And because most people exist in that kind of situation, it is something that appears to be largely amoral. But that's because of a lot of us, and, you know, myself included in many respects, sort of live dependent on other people knowing the, the truth for us, right? And I'm not talking just like Dr. Truth Science Fauci or anything like that. I'm also talking um, your, your car mechanic, like um, I can't install my own trailer hitch on my car, you know? Like that's the kind of thing that I need someone's help with. And I don't have any sense of what's required to do that correctly. And so because I lack these like objective understandings, I also then lack, I think, the way of knowing how to objectively parse things that are going on that are related to that thing. And so all media formats, I think, suffer from this. Like, it's hard to have a, a morality about food, for instance, if you, you don't know about cooking or about sourcing ingredients. And I think uh, in many respects, the same can be said about what might be true about the climate debate or about, uh, in this case, social media. We have most of the big heavy hitters in the social media world talking about this in a way that um, speaks, that, that spats of like truth, right? It sounds objective, but really the computer gives us the ability to sort of self-assign what value we apply to our daily experiences. And because of that, morality is really hard to judge. The only way I think that you can do it objectively anymore in today's world is by actually engaging yourself very deeply within the communities that sort of form their truth together, much like I believe, uh, you know, the broader liberty movement does. Do you think we're largely in an age of cognitive dissonance? Do you think that's why people are so mean to one another? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I think that there used to be a sort of need to integrate at various uh, interface points in society. And uh, when we extrapolated that into software, what we did was we sort of left those uh, decisions about those interfaces into the hands of people who are largely very undeserving of being able to make those choices. Like, I think that computer people are probably the last people you'd want to ask about how to do something with a heart. Um, you know, I'm just saying from experience, right? I, I very much stand out in my uh, peer group because I'm not insular, um, introverted, and uninterested in talking with people. Mm -hmm. uh, empathy is really important, but most software developers really lack it. So I think that's how we got here, was by offloading these concerns to people who just don't want to think about those things. And that includes many of the people that work at big tech. Is there, are, are there rifts inside of tech companies um, over this? I know, obviously, James Damore is kind of the test case, but uh, is that common? I work for a software company, but we have so far remained pretty cohesive and uh, not let politics infect the company. And I think part of that is that, you know, our home office is in Atlanta and hardly anybody works there. It's a totally remote company and we're global. So, you know, I, I have meetings with people in Australia all the time, for instance. Well, I think that uh, at the big tech company, so I worked at Amazon and um, there is absolutely an internal struggle with this issue. And there always has been 
But um, one side definitely won. And I think that that's also the case of the other big tech companies. I think that Amazon and um, also Netflix have added an especially bad new component to this issue, which is that now they're kind of doing live testing on people. Oh. You know, uh, so Amazon introduced this idea of multivariate testing, which is where you kind of like change aspects of the product and the wild, and then you designate who gets that change based on certain factors that they might have about them. And then you measure the results and you test, and then you just kind of end up finding what's the best way to do the product, right, for these users. Well, Netflix took that a step further and invented this ridiculous thing called Chaos Monkey, which is basically the idea is at Netflix, your systems that you write for Netflix have to be so resilient that the idea is you're supposed to be able to let a, a monkey just run wild in the server room and start destroying things, and your software should still be standing. Now, this meant that Netflix would actually hack into their own infrastructure and intentionally destroy their equipment and start deleting software and deleting records and databases simply to see, did the software developer make something resilient enough wow. to meet that standard? And then you start asking, why are we doing human trials of the coronavirus vaccine, right, in 2021 when the period is going to end in 2023? It's the same idea in practice. Um, you know, this is why I really am distrusting of the big tech companies because they not only do these things that have such clear effects on the culture, they also know they're doing it. And that's the thing that disturbs me the most. Can you fill in the gap there? Uh, you said, why are we doing human testing on the coronavirus vaccine in 2021 when the period is going to end in 2023? Uh, yes. And What's so, the period? Well, so, you know, with the um, issue of the coronavirus vaccine, the mRNA uh, vaccine vector that's being used in the main vaccines mm. uh, hasn't really stood the test of any serious human trials, as far as I'm aware. And um, also that most of the animal trials have led to disastrous results. And uh, as a result of being able to push the vaccines into the public's hands through emergency uh, orders, and then also by the ability to uh, avoid any legal ramifications if things go wrong, they've been subjecting you know, much of the world to this vaccination process, which has very little data about it. And what they're doing, it, it appears, is testing the reactions and results uh, to this vaccine, to the virus in general, in real time. And I think Michael Malice has even um, you know, given some indications that he believes that uh, you'd be crazy to think that nobody's measuring results of all the pandemic activities. The um, whole oppression in real time and uh, changing up the, the orders that are coming from the state level, it all just smacks to me of a sort of re-implementation of this chaos monkey idea. Mm -hmm. Throw people's lives through a wrench, just completely disrupt things at random for people and see what happens. And we, we're doing it in many ways, not just in the vaccination world. That seems particularly evil. Chaos monkey is evil, I think. <laughs> and the idea of it is that you're sort of um, making your coworkers uh, adversaries. And I think that's really speaking to the general just eroding of trust that exists in human interactions. I mean, imagine in someone in the 1950s going up to their boss and saying, you know what I think we should do? We should just throw a bunch of garbage into the assembly line, making these Ford cars, and you know, we should just see what happens. And then uh, whoever is able to solve the problems the best gets the promotion. I mean, you know, no one would have thought that was a good idea. In fact, they would have probably seen it as just morally reprehensible. 
Microsoft was notorious for for their performance reviews where people were like ranking each other and God, I can't remember the name of it, but basically the the coworkers would rank one another and I think like the bottom one percent or something was just fired. I, something like that. It was particularly it was it was it wasn't a great cultural thing for the company. Oh no. And it, it, I mean, and really, 360 reviews, which a lot of companies have been using, uh, although I think they're on their way out. Really, I mean, just pitting coworkers against one another, or in every case that I've ever seen, making coworkers you know be dishonest about one another because they just want to they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Because um, I'm in Minnesota, where everybody everybody is conflict averse. Uh, <laughs> uh, these practices might hurt company culture, but it sounds like what what Netflix is doing has an actual impact on their product. Yes. That's that's nuts. It does mean, right, that what they're doing is they're sort of making it possible for video to stream to their customers no matter what's going on. And I think that's sort of uh, the implication there is that if you trust this method, and it has appeared to have worked, um, you can end up with the most resilient cloud infrastructure in the world. And that's why Netflix represents something like half of all the world's bandwidth. Uh, it's just... People trying to watch those same three episodes of Friends over and yeah. over and over again. And meanwhile, you're really fucking with your employees' emotions. That as well. And you know, the thing I, I think too is that when you can't escape the work-life balance problem, which by the way, almost all software people have that problem, mm-hmm. it will enter into your personal life and your public life. And uh, I think that we're just seeing those effects everywhere. What's the way out of this? Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, um, the the next 10 years are going to be difficult for a lot of people. And I think especially for people who have thus far remained um, unaware of how these interfaces work and how these systems uh, operate in our daily life. My feeling is that we need to become much more conscious consumers. And I think that's the way out. We have to begin to ask ourselves as a default, um, what information am I giving away? Uh, does this end-user license agreement mean anything particularly bad for my way of being? Mm-hmm. A lot of people have resigned themselves to the idea that technology is really hard and they know things are nefarious and getting done, but they just said, I can't do anything about it. And that's kind of you know the way that people live. But imagine if like your front door was open and the lock didn't work, and then you just say, oh, I just got to live with it. You know, like The idea of extrapolating that into other parts of our life, it's in disharmony with how we know life needs to be lived. And so, to me, the way out is to, unfortunately, uh, embrace what's going on here. Because until we understand this stuff, we can't um, alleviate it from our lives. Unfortunately, it's too deep-seated. And this did begin with Microsoft. It's their deceptive practices that um, we should have avoided from the very beginning. But now it's morphed into something even worse. And I think what needs to happen is sort of like um, a good-faith embracing of what these technologies are all about the history behind them and the motivations that people have for doing things. Like a lot of people don't think that their email activity is very relevant, but people don't realize just how important irrelevant data can be to someone who wants to attack somebody over, um, say, a, a botnet over the web. So that's really the way out. We have to start applying a moral ethic mm-hmm. to these actions that we take on the computer. So getting back to trust and like the trustless environment, is part of it just being cognizant of, maybe not cognizant of who we're trusting and who we're distrusting, but like just being cognizant of the fact that what I'm doing right now isn't requiring me to trust anything. And that's probably 
a reason for me to give this a second thought. That's a good way to look at it, actually. Because I told Robbie this. When um, Twitter was censoring the Hunter Biden story, for instance, mm-hmm. the thing that I had to remind them was that, like, you know, think about, take Twitter out of the mix here and just look at the situation. What are you left with? I mean, there's nothing even there now because Twitter not only invented the technology that he's using to access the web servers that allow him to tweet tweets, they also had to come up with this brilliant way of managing the infrastructure and keeping itself live and reliable for, you know, 99.99% of the time. Um, And a lot of people don't, I don't think, comprehend just how much intellectual capital that is. Like, it's such a profoundly difficult thing to do what Twitter's doing, even though it might not be very useful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing with Netflix. And so um, as a result of that, right, they hold all the power. Now, the problem is... um, for the last 10 years, they haven't had to hold this power at all. And in fact, we've had technology that far supersedes what even the big tech people are doing. But it requires a degree of knowledge that just isn't there yet among the populace. When we get there, the fear I have is that there won't be quick enough adoption to finally re-establish our sovereignty um, as digital citizens. The thing that I think we need to look for in the near future is how can we get people off of Twitter? How can we people? How can we get people off of YouTube? You know, these are really the things that keep people in the old way. What are some uh, options for that? Right. I know that I know that I know that. Uh, like my my podcast is uploaded not just to YouTube but to Odyssey, and I I even put it in my YouTube descriptions. Look, if you're watching this on YouTube. Fine, but here, click this link to, to, to go watch it on a better platform. Um, so I, I um, had recommended um, Odyssey's underlying library. It's actually called Library, yeah. L-B-R-Y, yep. on the first episode of Run Your Mouth I did. And uh, at the time, Odyssey wasn't a thing. But um, in the following months, I believe, Odyssey went live, and it is changing the game. It's essentially uh, YouTube, but what YouTube should have been from the very start, and with a sort of uh, decentralized approach that makes it very unsusceptible to things like censorship. Everything is community controlled. These are very good options for digital video. Uh, But in general, running your own video from your own website is also pretty easy using conventional JavaScript tools. And so there's multiple ways that you can actually do this um, as your own person. You don't any longer need the big tech companies to facilitate this work for you. Um, And that's a beautiful thing, you know, but it just takes that community realization, because only once we've all established that that knowledge that there's this beautiful world of free software out there that is actually a lot better than what big tech does, that's when we'll see the sea change. And that's when we'll see the complete, I think, evaporation of left and right ideology. That's pretty optimistic. Speaking I'm of, very optimistic about the future. Speaking of right ideology, um, <laughs> we've, got, we've got a little bit of time, so let's get into it. QAnon, to me, seems like just another one of these social experiments similar to uh, Chaos Monkey and the vaccines and um, whatever else. But man, the people who believe in the QAnon stuff, they really believe it. Like Trump's going to be back in office, what, next month? It's, huh. it's July now, so August is the new March, was the new January 7th. What a, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, so part of this is... Um something that even I have trouble grasping fully, but my uh, interpretation of everything that's been going on is that it's largely like a religious movement. I think very much like the woke ideology is on the left. 
You've got um, a postmodern, maybe post-postmodern approach to ideas that the QAnon people endorse. And in many respects, you're getting a similar kind of ethic sometimes from the woke crowd in the sense that they're prioritizing these very interesting things, you know, that you wouldn't really think would be most important to anybody who's seeking the truth. QAnon seems like a weird thing to go down, just like woke ideology would be. Um, To me, it's uh, also an indication, though, of the effectiveness of anonymous image boards, uh, because that's really where QAnon has developed most of its legs, is on image boards like 4chan, 8chan, which is now 8con, I think, and um, Lane Chan, and all those kinds of like very, um, you know weaponized autism kind of communities, for lack of a better word, that's really where this stuff grows. And I think, um, you know, what's interesting is it shows us the power that we have over truth when people's identities aren't directly attached to the statements being made. I think uh, that's a very interesting development in, in society. So it starts out on these anonymous boards, presumably mostly Gen Zers and younger millennials. Uh, I mean, I'm an older millennial and I, I think I've been on 4chan twice in my life. <laughs> so that's where it starts. And these things are kind of trustless. I mean, you, you're, not, you're not relying on someone's reputation, obviously, because an anonymous person doesn't have a reputation. Right. But then the boomers latch onto it and they're not used to trustless. Like, how does it get from a trustless environment like 4chan or 8chan or whatever the other thing was that you said, <laughs> from there to, like, you know, mom. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think that in the early days of the internet, you might recall that there was a lot of focus from moms, especially, on um, the violence of online PC games and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Their understanding of the issues that were at hand were very much based on what they were observing um, their teenage son, usually son, doing on the computer. And it wasn't really based on what they were experiencing on the computer themselves because they weren't interested in that, right? But politics and these sorts of like um, fairy tales that people will fall, uh, you know, head over heels for, it's really um, something that Disney has perfected. And so it's a thing that's being presented to us in a way that really encapsulates us and captures our imagination. And um, in a way that's trustless, a lot like how you just sort of trust the Walt Disney Corporation to make you feel good at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, if you take that same ethic and that same way of thinking and you apply it to QAnon, you're hearing things like trust the plan, right? And, um, you know, it's all about sort of holding out until the end. It might be bad now, but it's going to be great right. at the end of the story. And um, I think 4chan has done an amazing job at giving people a way to manufacture that in a way that plays out over real time. So the story never really ends. But it's always something that you can trace back to a specific culture. And I think that's how it gets weaponized. Trust the plan and trust the science on, uh, on the other side. Support wow. the troops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. Exactly. Um, all right, cool. So what are, uh, what are some neat technologies for, you know, to, why, why, are you, why are you so optimistic, first of all? And besides library and and maybe I don't know I'm 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 optimistic about Bitcoin maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily uh, unqualified optimism but uh, I think that blockchain based currencies are probably a net good I think you said at the beginning that you kind of differ from that I don't know um, well yeah why don't you why don't you get into why maybe you're optimistic and what qualifications you would or qualifiers you would add on to your optimism. Definitely. So in terms of why I'm optimistic, 
I have a couple, but the big one for me is whenever I've not known how to do something and whenever I've wanted to be able to do something better or different, I've always been able to go to a resource like GitHub, for example, mm-hmm. or other software resources like this. And I've been able to find a person or a group of people out there who have dedicated real time to solving that problem for you. And not only that, they gave it away for free. They documented the whole thing really well so others could use it. And they're open to uh, recommendations to how to improve it uh, for the good of everybody. And we all do this um, on services like GitHub with no expectation usually of any payment, except for the fact that we can contribute to something that's bigger than ourselves and is really, really great and growing at a fantastic speed. So when the average software developer, you know, someone who I never went to school for it, right? I have no professional or you know academic background that makes me qualified to write software. I just did it. And I think that's what makes me so optimistic is I can't think of a time in history where it was so easy for people to do something so powerful. Um, And we do it for free within um, a very loosely organized structure that supersedes the ideas of government and of corporation and uh, even of just social hierarchy. It's a really interesting and pure um, search for the truth. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I just think that like, it's like the new encyclopedia almost what we're doing in the software world and it will hit critical mass one day where it will overpower the big tech companies so what do you think that looks like where where it trickles out from the software community to the general public let me well first of all let me give yeah. an example of what i think you're talking about sure so my partner plays competitively super smash brothers melee it's, an, it's a game for the GameCube. Nice. I think it came out in 2003. Mm-hmm. So he's been playing it for close to 20 years. And, you know, I mean, GameCube obviously is an old system. It predated the Wii, which predated, you know, Switch and whatever else. And Melee is basically the only game for GameCube that anybody still plays. And the way that they play it now in the year 2021 is via an emulator. And this emulator is called Slippy. And Slippy allows competitive melee players for the very first time, and this is so revolutionary in the melee community, they can play it competitively over the internet with zero lag uh, between the between the two computers. I mean, it's better technology than Zoom in that respect. Oh, yes. And it's absolutely free. Anybody can do it. And it has completely changed the game. Nintendo, though, hates it. They won't let you hold tournaments. They won't let you, uh, like... I mean, they've tried to take down Slippy. Uh, obviously, the Slippy community is powerful enough to where they can, you know, threaten to boycott Nintendo. So there's there's sort of a, a tension there. Uh, but so is it things like that that you think are going to reach this critical mass? And like, how does how does Mom discover it, or does does it not matter that Mom's going to discover it because Mom will probably be in her in her dotage by then? It's very important, actually, for mom to discover it, in my opinion. I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But it's an awesome thing that's come about, actually, for um, Super Smash Melee players. I've heard about this uh, particular app, although I have not used it myself. But it reminds me of when the original Xbox came out. And I remember you were able to network four of them together for a total number of players in um, the same room. I think of yeah. 16. And I remember there was an early application back then that exploited this and allowed you to connect over the web to different players and uh, play not just locally in the same room together, but also online over the internet. And this was years before Xbox Live came out. And Microsoft hated it, of course. But it is these kinds of things, right, that um, excite me about the world. Because 
it used to be that we would get one of these innovations, you know, once every 10 years. Like the 10 years before that, we had these um, chips that you could solder onto um, your console. And what that gave you back then in the days of like Nintendo 64 and Sega Dreamcast was an ability to play pirated games. Um, so you could download all the latest game releases and then for free, using this mod chip to bypass the encryption, you could, you know, play any game you wanted, basically. And, you know, before then, video games were so infantile in their development that nothing could be exploited like that. But that's the beautiful thing that I've always seen in my life with technology is that every time the hierarchies uh, get established and there's some new thing to keep you out, it's a matter of days, if not hours, before it's broken. And there's only one product launch you'll ever get, right, for the product you're building. But there's millions of people out there who are initiated enough to be able to have an impact on that release to the extent that it's no longer viable. So um, the way that the tech community can fight back against the big tech firms is already pretty big. Woke ideology, I think, in many respects, is a way to capture people so that they don't end up doing those things against the big tech companies. Are you familiar with Eric Clayton? I'm not. Okay, he's a, well, old, old school open source advocate. Hmm. And I think I'm going to link to some of his, or maybe I'll just link to his website so that people who are interested in this kind of thing um, can see, like, how far we've come since he started writing, uh, how far we have to go. You guys sound a lot alike, though, um, in sort of your your focuses and maybe even optimism, although he's a little bit more incendiary than you seem to be. Hmm. Um, cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to hit on? Before we go? Well, um, I can't really think of much, man. This has been a great talk, and I've just really loved engaging with these ideas, and I really appreciate the level of thought you've uh, given them. It was right, a cool. lot of fun. Awesome. If there's, a, if there's any advice you can give people, what would it be? Great question. Um, my biggest piece of advice is to start using these technologies. Um, just, you know, foot in the door. Get a little Bitcoin. Try IPFS out. Just, you know, dip your toe in the water. And think about it for a second and just see if what you see could be extrapolated in some other way to make your life better. And I bet you if you take that exercise to heart, you'll find something. Do you have a second to describe what IPFS is? Sure. Yeah. So the IPFS, I believe, stands for the Interplanetary File System. And yeah. um, the it idea seems really sci-fi, so that's why I like it. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, so it's a, basically a way to make any file you want available on the web to be available in a um, BitTorrent style of availability in the sense that if multiple people want the file, they can all share a copy of it. But it's the kind of um, system where there's no centralized server. And so you have to use newer technologies to be able to find those other people who have the files you're interested in. Mm. And what makes it interplanetary is that the files that you choose to share are what you then use to network with other people on the network. And so in a way, it takes uh, your shared interest in a specific file or piece of content as the initiator of a new relationship. And then because it's decentralized, you have um, full control over how you want that relationship to look. Either you can know the name of the person that's giving you the file, or you can be completely anonymous. Um, you can choose to share a little bit of the file or all of the file. It's that kind of control over your own destiny while also promoting legitimate connections, I think, that makes IPFS very exciting. That's There's awesome. others out there too, like the HyperCore network and um, the DAT ecosystem. Both are very promising. So IPFS kind of socializes, not socializes in the sense of socialism, but like makes 
peer-to-peer file sharing like BitTorrent a social experience, or it can. Right. Actually, really what it does, it puts Hayek's idea of um, the decentralization of knowledge into practice. Mm. Um, We have a certain thing we want to pursue. There's multiple people who have that thing and give you the answer. But the most efficient way to get the answer to you is to do it through a series of connected peers as opposed to one monolith. And that's what IPFS is all about, making the individual participants a, uh, a primary originator of ideas and of relationships. All right, cool. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Andrew. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and plug your work and all that? Great, yeah, thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I can be found at grathwall.me, uh, G-R-A-T-H-W-O-H-L dot me. Uh, my music is at multiplicity, multiply.city, M-U-L-T-I-P-L-I dot city. And uh, check out Storyboard, which is where I'm working now. We do private podcasting for um, your workplace. What's the URL for Storyboard? It's uh, trystoryboard.com. There it is. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. And uh, audience, stay tuned. I'm going to play a little clip from uh, Untitled by Cosmo D. And then we'll awesome. get, into the, get into the outro. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Talk to you later. Thanks, James. All right, thanks again to Andrew for joining me today. And thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. As promised, here is a clip of Untitled by Cosmo D on cello. The clip is about a minute long, and it is intentionally chaotic. So if it's not to your liking, keep that in mind, and I will see you on the other side. So you either found that really, really cool and interesting, or it was grating on your ears. Either way, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget, go to blackbirdpodcast.com to sign up with your email address. And if you feel so inclined, slide me a few bucks. To hear more from Andrew, I've got the links in the show notes. And until the next episode of Blackbird, live free.